Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Uh, This time we're coming to you from a secret location high in the Rocky Mountains, not too far from the Aspen Ideas Festival, where ideas are everywhere. Uh, And I am here in that tiny studio with Ed Luce of the Financial Times. In Stanford, uh, at Stanford in California, we have Corey Shockey. And in Vermont, somewhere near Lake Sanger, the most prominent uh, geographic feature in Vermont, we have David Sanger of the New York Times. Um, it's actually an overflowing septic tank in David's backyard, but um, in the right light, it's incredibly, um, it's incredible. In the right light. Yeah, it's incredibly scenic. Right, David? It's beautiful. Well, actually, I'm, I was up here looking around for one of Rose's silos because I saw on the internet that there was one right along the Vermont New York border, but it turned out there's a brewery, the Otto Creek Brewery, Otter Creek Brewery, right near me. So I never quite made it to the silo, David. Yeah, well, I'm not, su- I'm not surprised. For it. We're very lucky, by the way, to have Ed Luce here because last night, as he was stumbling drunkenly to his room at the at the Ideas Festival, because Ed is also on his honeymoon, ladies and gentlemen, at the Ideas Festival, because this is a guy who is incredibly romantic. <laughs> it's like, hey, hey, honey, want to hang out with a bunch of Washington, you know, folks that we really know at the Fresh Air Camp for, for the okay, Washington. None of our deep state nerds are laughing because all of them would do that. Spot that she turned down. Um, well, the, the, the alternative is actually not mutually exclusive. It's a delayed honeymoon in August. Um, and so this is like an optimal solution. We get to hang out with the likes of David Rothkopf. Uh, yeah. Well, but, but what I was getting at was we're lucky to have you here because there was a bear sighting outside your room last night, right? There was. A large bear. A large black bear. And apparently it was marauding and looking curious. And so we, we locked our doors, not just because we're honeymooners, but because there was a bear outside. Yeah, so I just, if those of you think that we're here hobnobbing with elites and that there is no risk beside boredom, which, by the way, is a very high risk. Um, no, there are animals here. So I, I chaired a panel yesterday here, and it was called something like National Security in the Age of America First. First of all, I want to thank you for that, David Sanger. You know, that's the gift that keeps on giving your conversation with Trump, where he learned that there was this term. Uh, But, you know, it was David Petraeus, Peter Fever, who used to write for or still writes for FP and was a Bush national security official. And Julia Yaffe, a a regular on, on our show and a writer for The Atlantic. And 
Petraeus went into the most remarkable defense of Trump I've ever heard. This It's actually better than we've had in a long time. He's decisive. He has the best national security team uh, that Petraeus has ever seen. Um, and, you know, all you could hear, you know, if this was Annie Hall and there were subtitles, the subtitle would be, I still could get a job in this administration. I still want a job. Uh, but, but, but to me, the jaw-dropping moment came sort of 90% of the way through, where because of the nature of the conversation, I turned to him and I said, Dave, do you think President Trump is fit to serve? And Petraeus said, it's immaterial because his advisors are so good. Corey? So I think it's immaterial, but for a different reason. It is immaterial because he got elected, right? As you know, I am an unrepentant signatory of every single one of the Trump is unfit to serve letters, but he's the president now. Uh, and, And until something happens that none of us can affect, he's our president. And, and we need to keep him honest, uh, help make sure he doesn't do damage to the country. Well, but that's the point, isn't it, David? The point is, if the president is unfit to serve, then he is damaging the country. And whether he's the president or not, or we voted for him or not, or he's likely to be impeached or not, it is actually salient to evaluating our national security and our foreign policy to know whether the guy who's in the top job, who's got his hands on the controls, is actually mentally competent or professionally competent to do their job. Well, David, um, it's the nature of the connection that we have between the mountains of Colorado and the deep backwoods of Vermont that I actually couldn't hear a word of what Corey said. However, (laughs) I've got a pretty good guess about what Corey said. And, um, yeah, I think uh, the nature of what the uh, who's, who's actually sitting in the Oval Office makes a significant difference. Because you can have very good advisors, but we have seen moments. We may be seeing one now with um, steel tariffs. We uh, have seen some of them before, certainly with the Paris Accord, where the president simply overruled his advisors and went with his base. And we don't know how he would act, of course, in a moment of crisis. We haven't had one yet, but North Korea is promising one. Ed? So, uh, personally, I don't believe Trump is fit to serve, and I don't believe that, you know... There's really any doubt on that score. Um, uh, and But I also agree with Corey and David that, you know, saying that doesn't actually improve our, um, uh, our global security. The thing that has really struck me in the last six weeks or so is the degree to which other countries are really beginning to take out insurance against Trump's unfitness um, to serve. Um, you know, we talked about, I think, in an earlier episode, Christian Freeland's speech to the Canadian Parliament, the Canada's foreign minister. Um, we've talked about Merkel's reaction to the Trump-NATO non-pledge on Article 5 of NATO. We've talked about what other military bases like Singapore and Djibouti and such like are going to be doing a thinking in response to um, Trump's tweets against Gata which, of course, hosts 11,000 American servicemen and women. Um, The fact that the rest of the world and America's closest allies 
are taking out insurance against Trump being essentially a marauding bear. You know, is he friendly or is he going to bite your head off? You don't know. <laughs> um, that, that to me is the sort of measure of your question. Corey, you know what's going to happen from this, don't you? Yes. Yes, I do. You know yes, that the I internet do. is going to produce Ed Luce's bear as a new character <laughs> on Twitter. Our devoted deep state nerds are actually the reason to do this podcast. The, the little gif of, of that crazy fish, ostensibly David's, made my whole day. S- Sanger's fish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was that was weird. Right also, the deep state radio theme song. Right. Also, the which fact I that I know we are now also going to get avalanches of. Yeah, I'm sure we will. And you know, also the notion that somehow out of somewhere it, there came David Rothkopf's lemur, which <laughs> I don't even know where that came from. I don't have a lemur, and I don't believe people should own primates. But let me go back to you, Corey, because on this more serious point. Um, you know, the the president uh, next week in honor of July 4th is meeting with the father of his country, Vladimir Putin. Um, and it, the, there, there are reports that European intelligence services are worried that Trump's going to get played because of the various problems with his character that will make him easy prey for the likes of Putin. And, you know, whether that's the moment or not, again, it goes back to this issue. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have to talk about impeachment. If he's a lousy president, it's salient. And, and, and if his character is, is causing us damage, it's worth talking about, right? Absolutely. I did not mean to suggest that it wasn't a suitable subject for conversation or was irrelevant to the trajectory of America's national interests. I just meant that since he is president, his fitness um, doesn't affect until until Congress tells us otherwise, doesn't affect whether or not he's president. I share the view that that Trump's character, the thin-skinned narcissism and venality of him, and the apparent incapacity. Now you're talking. <laughs> now you got going. Keep going. Right. To to read a page of text on which essential information for the conduct of his office is written. Yeah, that's a big problem, and it looks to me like uh, every authoritarian has the opportunity to play him. It looks like to me like the Chinese did. Um, the only democratic ally that appears to have figured out a way not to antagonize um, this thin-skinned, venal president is, is Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan. But everyone else that we like, including the South Korean prime minister, who was threatened with a trade war this morning and renegotiation of the the existing trade agreement, um, everybody else, its they ought to be hedging. They ought to be worried that President Trump is enthusiastic about making compromises with authoritarians that he has a perverse attraction to um, and is willing to make deals with Putin in particular. I think everybody's right to be worried. David, one of the things that's happened this week that should have you worried 
is that the president of the United States apparently was engaged in a blackmail plot or was alleged to be engaged in a blackmail plot where he was seeking or actors on his behalf in the White House were seeking to use a National Enquirer story to smear Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, who the president did one of his most repulsive numbers on. Um, And uh, the White House, according to Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, called up and said, you know, if you drop story X, we will not have this thing run in the National Enquirer. And the president, of course, denied this immediately. By the way, he said... I don't watch Morning Joe, <laughs> and then immediately started responding to it. But but he denied this. He also this. made the point that he watched it, uh, you know, the morning after he had turned out his tweet, and it's ima- hard to imagine that he would have in- immediately uh, tweeted about um, his encounter with him at Mar-a-Lago had he not watched it the day before. But but that's an aside. Yeah, well, that is an aside. But let's let's you know, it's fun. You know, it's funny, right? This is the National Enquirer. It's a former reality TV star. It's Joe and Mika. You know, they're, you know, they do a imp- important show, but they're kind of a little bit celebrity-ish in addition to, you know, being news uh, types. And they, they had this relationship with Trump in the campaign that seemed to be a little bit supportive of him. And it, it all seems kind of reality TV. But on the other hand, the White House was trying to use blackmail to keep journalists from running a story, which seems to me in contravention to the president's oath to uphold and protect the Constitution, which actually has provisions in it uh, assuring a free press. Now, I, I just as a journalist, when you see this, do, you know, isn't this kind of extraordinary? Have we ever seen this before? And 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 should we or or, or is this just more hijinks? Uh, I suspect it's a little more on the height side. Of, of the many offenses against um, freedom of the press that I can think of in the past five or six months in this administration, um, threatening a National Enquirer story that few would believe about talk show hosts strikes me as pretty low on my um, category of uh, major offenses. And, of course, we don't know the right version of events yet here. We know what Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski have said. We know the president denied it. We don't know exactly who those White House officials were who allegedly called. And uh, I'm not sure I would put this quite up there with the Russia investigation. But it does raise an issue that actually loops back to our first topic, which is what do you think about the fact that this man can serve, and you don't have to worry about his time as, as president, uh, if he's got surrounded by good advisors. And that is that this whole incident this week in which he gets upset by something that he hears on Morning Joe, which probably had to do with Mika Brzezinski talking about his suitability for the presidency, which is a, a big team for him. and then tweeting back with something that was both crude and highly personal, um, and then continuing this on, and doing this on the same day that he had to get through the vote on or or try to assemble the right numbers of the vote in the Senate on the health care bill, meet the South Korean president for the first time to discuss how they're handling North Korea, set the terms for a meeting with Vladimir Putin next week, and have the entire day taken over 
by his personal feud with Mika Brzezinski, I think that sends a message to allies as well. And in some ways, that's more worrying to me than somebody turning around and saying, we'll let the National Enquirer publish a story about you. Well, I'm, I'm not going to let this drop out. I want to turn to you because, you know, just like David Petraeus won't criticize generals, you know, David Sanger won't. Uh, defend any journalistic outpost except the New York Times as being serious. Because, you know, the National Enquirer helped get Donald Trump elected. It's, it may be completely incredible, um, but it, it, it has some kind of an impact. Um, and obviously it was being used as a threat, so it had some kind of an impact. But I want to take a step back and joking with David aside, let's just look at it from a different perspective. Every single day, this White House goes after the press. It shuts them out of uh, 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 press events. It, it makes the events off camera. It intimidates the press. It attacks the press. The president attacks the press, attacks people by name, calls them names, um, uses techniques like this. The president's family attacks the press. I've never seen an atmosphere. I mean, you know, presidents and their staff always tend to be a little irritated with the press. But I've never seen a White House where beating up on the press, trying to suppress the press, has been, if not um, the most important daily plank in their platform, it's it's certainly one of them. Yeah. I, I mean, I... I you know, dipped into the campaign quite a bit um, during 2016 and, and late 2015 and went to some Trump rallies. And I'll never forget being in the sort of media pen. And then Trump, at a certain point, inevitably, in his speech, pointing towards us um, and talking about the lying media, the fake media, and, and sometimes calling out particular, always TV reporters, almost always TV reporters by name. And then the crowd turning and the temperature raising benefits Trump derived from this and the campaign boosting benefits Trump derives from this. So in his mind, this is a formula that worked from day one of his improbable candidacy and partly helped deliver him the White House. Um, and he's continued, he's continued to do it. I mean, the, you know, the whole shtick that you may be slightly in a slightly alarmist fashion of the Lugan press, you know, the, in the 30s, that the Nazis used this, the media, kind of as a stand-in for the corrupt establishment. That's worked for Trump. And, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to ever abandon it. It, it, it causes, it, although at one level this is an extraordinary act of self-harm, what he said about Mika Brzezinski, with, you know, half, more than half the electorate who are female, um, with anybody, you know, who considers the job that he's in to be serious. Although on that level, this is an extraordinary act of reckless, narcissistic, venal, as Corey says, behavior. On another level, you've got a lot of people who voted for him applauding the trolling, loving it every second of the way. And you can bet your bottom dollar he's listening to their adulation as much as he is our condemnation of, of this behavior. You know, at the risk of, of finding myself in, in agreement with Ed, um, <laughs> remember that after the, the Paxos Hollywood tape, we all thought he was finished, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody could say this kind of thing about 
women in the modern world. And, you know, like I remember people in the Clinton campaign saying basically the campaign was over. It turned out they were right. The campaign was over, but not in the way they thought. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I think that Ed's got a very good point, that this is playing to us in one way, and that his argument that whenever attacked on anything, he just attacks back ten times harder, even if it is inappropriate, even if it is personal, even if it is crude, even if it is unacceptable in any polite company, um, that's going to work for him with a determined part, corner of the base. So, Corey... One of the things that I've been hearing here at the Ideas Festival a lot, and as I, you know, ideas grow on trees here, literally, and wherever you go, <laughs> there's a friggin' idea. Um, uh, and uh, I, just, I heard a long discussion yesterday about whether um, sweater dresses could be turned into nice wedding dresses. You know, and that, to me, that was not a good idea, but there was an idea being discussed. Now you tell Ed after the wedding. Yeah, after yeah. The, Ed, a bit late. Yeah, it's a bit late. Ed was actually wearing a knit tuxedo. <laughs> really kind, kind of an image. That it will wanted. never happen. Never. It will never happen. <laughs> um, not at the Reform Club in <laughs> London, that's for sure. But um, uh, in, in any event, Corey, one of the things that I hear is that, you know, uh, it is kind of a, the latest variation on, on the discussion that David is talking about, which is, well, yes, Trump seems to have a hard floor around 37% in support, but the quality of that support is weakening. So he still has the 37%, but when people are asked, do you support him strongly? Fewer are saying they support him strongly, and this is erosion in the base. Um, And this is a point, by the way, made by one of your co-signatories in all those letters, Peter Fever, on this panel that I was on yesterday. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, as somebody who's inside the Republican Party, do you think anything is actually changing when you look at the Republican leadership on the Hill? Is something changing? I mean, there was a lot of condemnation about this Mika Brzezinski incident from Republicans. Um, so it's, are, is, is, is something finally happening or, or is this just sort of summer hallucination? Well, I don't... Um you know, Republicans on the Hill are hardly profiles encouraged these days. And, and you know, they will declaim the president's uh, tweets, but then can't resist the once-in-a-generation opportunity to have a Republican president who could ostensibly sign Republican legislation that they could ostensibly pass. Um, Uh, I don't think change is going to start on Capitol Hill, but I do have the sense uh, that there are, that the 37% of Americans who voted for Donald Trump, that there is some weakening. And and I'll just speak from my own experience. I was on a a radio show on Minnesota Public Radio uh, a week or two ago. And somebody called in who was a Trump voter, owned a construction business, um, and he had voted for President Trump because he thought Washington's not getting anything done. The country's got problems to solve. This guy's a businessman. Ignore everything else. We need to get the fundamentals right. Um, And this particular caller had lost confidence that President Trump uh, was paying attention and solving problems, that he's just another, you know, um, shallow, narcissistic Washington politician was the conclusion that this guy had. And 
you know, it's n equals one data point, but it does represent the kind of softening that Peter suggested he sees in the polling data. So yeah, I don't think it's impossible, but I think the pressure will have to come. We need to win the argument with our own voters about the direction of the party and the nature of behavior that we expect in our politicians. Do you see, Ed, any sign that either political party in the United States is working hard on determining what they're actually for as opposed to what they're against or what needs to be an American agenda for the next 10 or 20 years as opposed to relitigating the fights of the past five or 10 years? Is there any hint of a discussion of sort of proactive, thoughtful politics, whether it's of a Republican or a Democratic stripe? Look, I think people on the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party would claim that they're having that conversation, definitely. Um, I don't happen to believe the Sanders route is the, the best way to go, but there is a quite serious, earnest conversation um, happening within the Democratic Party. So I would distinct, differentiate that debate, however... If, if your most forward-looking people are embracing the New Deal, yep. you know, 75, 80 years later, um, that's probably a worrisome sign. Actually. It probably is, but let's, let, you know, let's be frank about it. Examples abound. And six months ago, we were, talk, we were having the conversation, why is populism only right-wing? Well, we're not having that conversation anymore. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, um, has provided um, quite a lot of ballast to the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party in terms of youth vote and enthusiasm and anti-austerity um, that I think, you know, has got them on the ascendant. The, the Republican conversation might start in some degree if uh, Trump care does fail. And I think it probably is going to fail. They're going to come back after this 10-day holiday um, with just three weeks to go before the August recess. McConnell, you know, how is McConnell going to square the Ted Cruz-Rand-Paul objections that it doesn't go nearly far enough in gutting whatever federal protections there are for insurance seek and health insurance seekers with the more moderate Republican um, Susan Collins types who realize that this is a form of, of, of party kamikaze that, that's going on here. How do you actually square that circle? I don't think you can. I don't think you get more than 50 votes. Um, and therefore, Trump care is going to go down in flames. Prospects for any kind of tax reform will therefore be commensurately very damaged. And maybe because they'll be looking at the bottom of the proverbial glass at that point, maybe there'll be a Republican conversation. But right now I see no sign of a, a larger what is in America's national interest and what, what is the GOP's role in helping deliver it. I, see, I do not see that conversation. David, do you see any of that anywhere? Not much, because the Democrats are pretty well persuaded at this point that they can run uh, in the next election by letting Trump fail and uh, or just by letting... Trump talk and tweet. And that formula worked so well in 2016, I can't imagine why they would ever question the man. Uh, and the Republicans are scared to death to admit to what's obvious in front of them, which is that much of what the president uh, says and does undercuts their very own agenda. They came to the, the edge of it uh, last week as the president was tweeting about Mika Brzezinski when he should have been focusing on the health care bill. 
They have admitted that the president is extremely weak on the details of these bills. He simply wants to be able to say that he has won or is winning. Uh, so, you know, he's in the position right now where um, the Republicans won't stand up to him, and the Democrats are still living in the fantasy that he will merely just uh, self-destruct. He might self-destruct, but there's no guarantee of that, and uh, certainly the Democrats have to admit that the last time they pursued that theory, it didn't work out quite the way they had in mind. What about you, Corey? Are you seeing anything? I mean, you're in Silicon Valley where the future is being invented. (laughs) Um, Well, one of the challenges, uh, I think, in American politics is uh, interesting these magnificent problem solvers who are reinventing the world here in Silicon Valley, it's a real challenge to interest them in public policy problems, in uh, acknowledging and taking responsibility for the social consequences of the changes they're unleashing. I think a big part of the next generation of American public policy is gonna be uh, challenging tech titans to be uh, not to to stop being simply, you know, sanctimonious and actually be helpful to the body politic. But Ed, I, I, Mark Zuckerberg's out there like as if he were campaigning. Visiting all 50 states, having dinner with uh, people who are surprised to have him around to dinner. I mean, it does look like he's preparing the ground for something larger than just uh, an algorithmic sort of tweak to how Facebook uh, filters out fake news. So... Uh, I'm so, sorry, Ed, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 Corey, you're, uh, you're, you're from the part of the world that I am libeling, so please interrupt. <laughs> no, I was just going to say an alternative explanation is that, you know, most tech titans are reflexively liberal. And what I notice is how shocked they all are to see how much... Donald Trump and his campaign were able to harness the technological tools that they created to foster a political movement they're horrified by. So an alternative explanation of Mark Zuckerberg's trip is to try and get an understanding of the actual country he's living in, as opposed to the bubble we live in here in Silicon Valley. You know, I got to say, by the way, there are a lot of people out there, some surprising people, um, who are offering an idea or a couple of ideas that if they were knit together with some others, might actually be an important part of this. And one of the ones I think about is because I'd happened to run into him here uh, is a, a tech titan, uh, Steve Case, who was the founder of AOL, who has made the point that m- almost all of the venture capital in the United States, like three quarters of the venture capital in the United States, goes to three states, uh, California, New York, and Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And if you and, and most of the new jobs that are created are created from new small businesses. Mm-hmm. And so if 47 states are not actually getting the bulk of the flow of the venture capital to start those businesses, those 47 states are not going to be able to create jobs in the way that the others. And we have to fix that because capital deserts produce other kinds of effects, including, by the way, red state America, which is paranoid about its jobs. And so that's, you know, that's an idea. You know, Andy McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT have another book out. And, you know, they're, they're, you know they have been dealing with this issue of uh, what does a job look like in a highly automated world and have had some really good, thoughtful ideas. So it's not like the ideas aren't out there. To me, it seems more like 
at the the political parties are immune to embracing those uh, or just don't feel that's their province anymore. I don't. Know. Oh, that's funny. I mean, you mentioned Steve Case, and 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 that's a, a brilliant example. He's actually based in Washington D.C. I mean, which is attracting quite a lot of venture capital, all the the greater right. Washington D.C., Bethesda, etc. Um, the the Supreme Court, which is, I think is a really positive thing, has agreed to hear the case of political boundary gerrymandering. Hitherto, as you know, they would look at racial boundary gerrymandering, but not broader political. By the way, all the folks who liked your parlous on your last visit will love your hitherto on this visit. Hitherto, it's a good word. It's yeah, an no. underused and underappreciated word. No, really. Hitherto. Now, of course, it's going to be greatly celebrated. Since Corey left high school in 1847, <laughs> almost no one... <laughs> Gory, I'm, I'm actually I'm not. there was no such thing as high school then. We just went to school and and got out when the harvest needed to be taken in. That that I'm just not gonna con- convey any. I'm not gonna dignify David's joke with by even <laughs> acknowledging it. Um, um, but but what I would say is that is potentially a really big deal. I mean, if the Supreme Court overturns the model of gerrymandering that you know basically runs um, the system where politicians choose their voters rather than voters choosing their politicians and, and then that's where, good news and where we we elect more incumbents to office than the than the supreme soviet of the soviet union used to because you create districts that you can't the incumbent can't lose absolutely we, we, that has to be it's very hard to imagine politics draining its sort of toxicity um, unless you get incentive for politicians to cooperate with, with each other. Right now, if, if politicians who cooperate get primary, they get zapped. If the Supreme Court can help, this is a massive a, a piece of help that they could provide. Now, this is a, an especially short episode of um, Deep State Radio. And the reason it is, is that today, the day that it's being released, is July 4th. And, and, and honestly, if you're sitting at home Listening to Deep State Radio on July 4th, you were as bad as we thought you were. You know? Well, it just means that the people who listen to Deep State Radio don't have any friends that invite them to barbecue. That, that, well, that, that's no, right. No, no, no. It means that they have just set down their parchment copy of the Declaration of Independence <laughs> and are humming in their heads with their hands over their hearts. We hold these truths to be self-evident and therefore wanted our enlightened company. And, and Corey, I think they are actually listening to it around the family table. Everybody's listening to it. <laughs> They're, listening to it. They're dressed in, uh, in, in tails with white tie. <laughs> <laughs> playing with their imaginary animal friends. Yeah, but Corey, friends in Britain sit around and listen to Deep State Radio. It's not really how we do it here in Vermont. Yeah, but no, in Vermont, in Vermont, what you—it's opioids, it's, it's and heroin, heroin mostly these days. But, but, but I was going to turn to Corey because no one, I think, can capture the spirit of American Independence Day like Corey can. And I just I wanted to turn to you and I wanted to say in this America where we have mad King Donald and that echoes back to mad King George, um, uh, there are still truths that we hold self-evident. And I thought you might want to share a couple of them. Absolutely. Like, I feel like everybody before they go barbecue should go back and actually read the Declaration of Independence to see how much time Thomas Jefferson wastes on things that aren't really all that grievous. 
um, of impositions on us. And yet also, you know, that the soaring beauty of our creed, that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments, and that we all have the right to overthrow our government if it ceases to represent our interests and our values. It's beautiful, it's soaring, it should make us all proud to be Americans, and it should also remind all of us that we have responsibilities as well as rights to bear witness to the failures of our government and civil society and to put our shoulder to the wheel to fix them. This is not only a beautiful comment that I knew we could get from Corey. It gives a perfect circularity to this episode where it takes us from Corey's statement that he's our president, we have to live with him, to Corey's statement that the Declaration of Independence obligates us to overthrow our governments when it is not, when they're not <laughs> serving us as, as, they, as they ought to be. Um, I hope, Deep State radio nerds, that you go out there inspired by Corey's words and that you will join us again a little bit later in this week and every week uh, for another episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, David. Thank you, Corey. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>